Gresham College presents Sudden Death in the Young, A Terrible Waste by Professor Martin Elliott. Um, this is going to be quite a challenging uh, lecture for me, but it's one I've um, felt for some time driven uh, to deliver. Just over seven years ago on Friday the 13th of November 2009, my son Toby died suddenly at home during the night. He was 26 and apparently, well, a year earlier, he'd bitten his tongue uh, during what he described as a nightmare in his sleep. And he bit his tongue again the night before he died. Undiagnosed, really, he died of sudden, unexpected death in epilepsy, or SUDEP. Now, um, neither I nor any of the five professors of medicine who came to his funeral, at least one of whom is here tonight, had ever heard of it. And we weren't alone. In 2011, a survey was carried out of 2,500 Canadian paediatricians who looked after people with epilepsy, and only a third of them had ever heard of the term. Um, in 2002, Jane Hanna from SUDEP um, Action had commissioned a, a sentinel audit highlighting that SUDEP was really deaths in the shadows. And that report said it was underrecognized, underreported, and poorly investigated by health professionals. Now, um, we need to have some working definitions. So I'm talking about sudden death in the young. And I'm going to pick uh, the most common definition of that, which is 0 to 35. When someone young does die suddenly, there's no time to prepare. It is sudden. There's no time to say goodbye. And a, a future is lost. Years of promise are unmet. Society in which they live is deprived of something and friends and family are brokenhearted. And I, th- I think what I didn't know, what I know now and what many of the people in this audience have experienced is that you, as a family, as an individual, are changed by that event. No time to prepare, no time to say goodbye. Now, the immediate effects of a sudden death are, are hard, of, hard for us to remember in detail when it happens, but they're well described in the literature. Um, there's overwhelming shock, numbness, anger, despair, <coughs> disbelief, anxiety, and guilt. Guilt that you should have said something you didn't say or you said something you shouldn't have said. Nobody tells you that these things can all happen at once and then days go by where they don't happen at all. You sort of think they're in stages. They're not. Big questions appear in your mind, like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did it happen to Toby? Why did it happen to us? Why did it happen to me? You lose concentration. You lose confidence. Your interest in life disappears for a while. Sleep becomes difficult, eating a chore. And there's this overwhelming and desperate sadness Your thoughts become irrational, and so do your actions. And you become 
quite intolerant uh, of the insensitivity and off-handedness of other people who either don't know or sometimes don't care. And you particularly come across that after a death when you bump into some people in officialdom who don't seem to get it. Um, for us, um, we came across somebody who had those painted fingernails that got trapped in the keyboard while she was typing. Uh, it became hugely irritating, especially when at the end of trying to fill in the death certificate, she said, have a nice day. The whole process is exhausting, and I, we could not have coped without the support of our families, our dear friends, and our wonderful neighbours, many of whom are here tonight. And I would like now just to thank you all publicly. You do slowly come to terms with it, but life is never, ever the same again. I dedicated this series of lectures to Toby's memory when I started here at Gresham, and obviously I'd like to rededicate this specific one to him too. But I'm well aware that what I'm talking about tonight is a small proportion of the deaths that happen in young people, so I would like to dedicate this also to all those young people who've died suddenly for whatever the cause. Losing a child is every parent's nightmare. It's death in the wrong order. And um, whilst I'm concentrating on two particular causes of sudden death tonight, I don't want to underestimate the impact that any death, whatever the cause, has on any family, however long you have to prepare. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to scan over a lot of things tonight, and there's going to be much more detail with references in the essay, which you can pick up when you leave this evening. The two primary areas I'm going to cover are sudden um, cardiac death and sudden death in epilepsy. And I first want to talk about how, how common they are. Between 1 and 2,000 people die in the UK each year of these two conditions. Uh, that sounds... Um, a number, doesn't it? We need to set it in context. Since 9-11, 53 people have died in this country as a result of terrorism. Last year, 60 people died in the armed forces, but only one of them was due to hostile action. Others had a lot of medical conditions and accidents. If we look at the causes of death reported by the Office of National Statistics in those aged 1 to 4... Not many people die, 40 is this number down here on the bottom left, 40 um, deaths of males, 40 of women, of, of, of young girls. The most common cause is congenital. Homicide and epilepsy come equal second. When you're 15 to 19, it's transport accidents, road traffic accidents that kill you. But epilepsy and homicide remain visible on both charts and in, in young men of this age, suicide becomes the second most common cause of death. And in, in older people, uh, up to the age of 35, suicide, um, accidental overdosing on, on drugs usually, or transport accidents dominate. Um, but epilepsy, homicide, and for the first time, significant cardiac, sudden cardiac death appears. Now, these medical causes of sudden death are thought to be um, 
likely to be commoner because the, there are many coding errors on death certificates, which we'll discuss later. One to 2,000 people a year dying of these um, causes. Now, it's, it's quite hard to create a mental picture of what that's like, but it's a lot of classrooms, lecture theatres, offices full of people with great hopes for the future and great promise. So I'm a cardiac surgeon, so I'm going to start covering um, sudden cardiac death. Um, older people like me, have, if they have sudden cardiac death, it's usually something degenerative like coronary artery disease or a valve abnormality or heart failure. But in the young, it's usually some sort of myopathy. This is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where the muscle of the heart, particularly in the left ventricle, is overgrown, as you can see. It's thicker than it should be. But you also see um, people who have an inflammatory disease of the heart called myocarditis, where the, the little black dots are inflammatory cells within the muscles. And then uh, a whole group of conditions, which, uh, for those of you who were at my last lecture, we talked about as uh, channelopathies, where the movement of ions, sodium, potassium, calcium, across the cell membrane, which are responsible for transmitting either the contraction of the heart or um, an electrical signal through the brain um, are uh, abnormal. These channelopathies can cause abnormal rhythms. And the fatal one is ventricular fibrillation, where the heart is just um, twitching like a bag of worms. The incidence of sudden cardiac death doubles with exercise. It's two or three times higher in athletes, but it's still low. It's still worth doing exercise. You're not going to die of exercise. And there's usually an underlying reason. So exercise doesn't cause sudden cardiac death. Sudden cardiac death occurs in people who have some predisposing factor, usually. The Americans have a registry which has been going now for 27 years, counting up and looking at those people who've died, athletes who've died. A third of them die of cardiac causes. And of those, a third from that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy a small number from coronary artery anomalies in the bottom right-hand corner, and these channelopathies and myocarditis, a smaller number. If you're male, black, and a basketball player, your risk is increased. But it shouldn't stop you playing basketball and becoming fit. It's just your risk goes up. Now, one of the interesting things about sudden cardiac death is that quite a lot of them, perhaps the majority, happen during the day. It's the sort of thing that happens on the football field, as Patrick Ekang, who played for Dinamo Bucharest and died this year on the field, um, demonstrates. If that happens, usually the uh, event is witnessed, sometimes on film, and an ECG is often taken during the resuscitation because the kit is all there, and so you can learn quite a lot about what happens. If you do know the cause of death, then the doctor who sees that person may be able to issue a death certificate. If not, they may request a post-mortem or refer it to the coroner because if it was a sudden death, unexplained. And the coroner may then request a post-mortem um, and so you're ending up in the same place. That post-mortem result then gets reported back to the coroner, usually, um, and, of course, the police, who may have been involved throughout, can also refer directly to the coroner. And the coroner then has to make a decision 
about whether to hold an inquest. It's only at that stage that you can complete the certification. So the family can be in limbo for quite a long time. And I'm going to come back to talk about that a little later in the talk. Um, the postmortem then becomes quite an important part in working out what's happened to this poor person who's died a sudden cardiac death and also to provide information to this family who is struggling to come to terms with it. Um, people have looked recently at what should be done in a cardiac postmortem. And these are the questions. Was it caused by heart disease? If so, what was its nature? Was it a rhythm problem, as I've suggested? Might it be inherited? Some of the in channelopathies particularly can be inherited. Are you sure they didn't take something they shouldn't have done or one of the drugs that they're on wasn't toxic uh, in, in dose? And have you ruled everything else out? Well, you'd think that would be pretty obvious. Uh, but in fact, there's quite a range of quality of performance of postmortems. Again, we'll discuss that later. And almost 50% of deaths occurring in this pattern are unexplained at the end of the postmortem, which is not a particularly satisfactory state of affairs, either scientifically or for the family seeking answers. Um, we need to know more. We need to get to the bottom of this to understand the cause of death so that we can do something about it in the future. We really need to obtain tissue samples as soon as possible so that we can look at the genetic makeup, the DNA of these people, and do a detailed molecular analysis of the heart, as well as just looking at standard microscopy. That tissue can really only uh, provide value if it's looked at by people who care about this disease, who look at it in a centre of excellence uh, with experts. They need to be able to interpret what the heart actually looks like to make sure there's no structural abnormality. And most of all, Given the fact that the, all of the studies which have looked at postmortems demonstrate significant variation in quality, we need to eliminate that. If you're going to investigate the cause of death in someone who's died suddenly, we should not be tolerating variation in quality. We should be seeking, seeking excellence every time. And none of us who've lost uh, a son, a brother, a daughter, want to have a postmortem. It's a um, a further and desperately unwelcome assault at a time when you're at your most vulnerable. And recently, um, MRI has been used as a substitute. And some very nice work, particularly for children, it's much even harder to, for families to understand how um, to cope with having their child uh, assaulted in this way. Um, in an MRI scanner, you can put the, the body in the scanner for long periods of time and do detailed analyses. And you can identify cardiomyopathy. You can identify a coronary artery disease calling an inf causing a, an infarction. And you can identify infection and myocarditis. And you don't need to make a big scar to get to the tissue. You can use a needle to go into the uh, area of interest. Um, this is a, um, a young athlete who, I don't know if you can see the little arrows on the top le uh, left-hand corner, who had a small area of his right ventricle which was causing abnormal rhythms. And it was just that that triggered the final event. All diagnosed from MRI. And this one, uh, finding an abnormal coronary artery that wasn't expected. The, 
the data are emerging, and this is uh, really the most recent paper looking at um, autopsy and MRI autopsy in young people, 17 patients, a small series, but highly sensitive and specific. Um, and this work is really promising, and certainly for me, uh, it seems like a, a natural way we should go. But of course, there's not enough, there are not enough scanners in the UK it's difficult to get access to them for living patients. And so there is resistance amongst radiologists, as you might expect, to use these facilities. And we have to think how this service might be delivered in the future if it does prove to be successful. Now, making a diagnosis for those people who have died is all very interesting, but it's not really of much use to the people who are at risk of dying in the future unless we can do something about it. And predicting the risk is sort of the philosopher's stone of sudden death. We ought to be able to find it. And in fact, um, there are some people now beginning to understand what it is that that happens that leads you uh, to die suddenly. And the most, um, I think, best description is is to say it's a sort of perfect storm. You start in such a perfect storm by being susceptible to certain events. You may have a genetic abnormality, a structural abnormality of your heart, or maybe some biochemical change. And then there's a a triggering factor, for example, exercise or excess alcohol or too much coffee if you're vulnerable. And then environmental factors, again, such as severe exercise or being pushed too far, extreme cold or extreme heat. Oh, the multiple factors. We still don't know in detail which of these affect an individual. Um, we don't have enough information to stratify that risk. And that's led people to argue in favour of, well, let's screen the whole population and find out what's going on. Wouldn't it be nice if we could identify everybody who was at risk and, and follow them up and see what happened? But that's a contentious argument on its own. Who do you screen? How do you screen? Is it actually practical to screen large groups of people? Even if you did, do you have anything you could do with the information? Is it effective? And in a society like ours at the moment, is it cost-effective? The kind of screening you might want to do is an electrocardiogram, with or without exercise, with or without more sophisticated imaging, or an echocardiogram, which might pick up uh, an abnormal cardiomyopathy like this one. This is not restrictive cardiomyopathy, this is a dilated cardiomyopathy. You can see that like a balloon. And you would want to do some genetic tests, taking tissue or blood for DNA analysis or, um, um, or, or um, mouth lining, and do some metabolic chemistry as well. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it's really expensive. In America, professional athletes get paid ridiculous amounts of money And they are screened electively. And the cost of the screening in the US is between 300 and 1 billion pounds dollars per year. Now, um, it's secret because, or it's not accurate because uh, a lot of these things are done privately by the clubs. Um, But that's a hell of a lot more than is invested in trying to find the cause of the problem and to research it. This is money spent to screen people so that they don't um, play for the team and die while they're playing. And pre-participation screening remains a recommendation in European sport, 
but it's not reached the stage where you would want to do it for the entire population. It just simply costs too much. We don't have the resources. If you do screen and you find you are in some sort of at-risk category, um, there's not much, knowing, not much point knowing if you can't do anything to prevent the consequences of having that risk. And that means that you need to have great care, great empathy from the team looking after you when you're discussing that screening with either the, the, with, a, with not only you as a potential victim, but also your close family. They need to have knowledge not just of the risk of the disease, but also the risk of the treatment. And complete honesty and openness is required. Our first duty is to do no harm. And that you've got to be sure that your chosen methods of reducing the risk of sudden death aren't so severe in their effect that they reduce the quality of life so much that death may, to some, seem like a better option. And certainly some of the treatments that have been suggested for both sudden cardiac death in the past and sudden death in epilepsy are pretty, pretty difficult to manage. If you have a channelopathy, one of these abnormal rhythms in the heart, then, um, and if that's supported by the post-mortem findings and the diagnosis of molecular tests, then uh, you can make an argument for screening the relatives to search for these particular rare types of rhythm change if they're supported by the findings and if it's rhythm related and once again emphasize that there's no point in doing this unless you're providing appropriate support for these families because it is seriously scary to have this sort of information unless you are um, dealing with experts who can tell you exactly what those risks are now it may seem bizarre to have a a slide headed treatment when I'm talking about sudden death. But remember that many of these sudden cardiac deaths occur during daylight and uh, on a football field or equivalent. And we must remember that there are resuscitative steps that you can take to save these lives. Um, The British Heart Foundation have prepared some excellent films and I'll just remind you of what I again showed last time. And no kissing. Don't even kiss your nan on the lips. Lock your fingers, knuckles up, and push hard and fast in on the sovereign to the tune of staying alive. Push down five to six centimetres. That's about three inches, whatever they are. Push hard and fast, go on. Better a cracked rib than him kicking the bucket. Do this until help arrives. That's my boy. We can all massage. Staying alive is a good rhythm to remember and three inches, whatever they are, to compress the chest. That's easy to do and you can keep doing it until somebody arrives with help. And in many places now there are public defibrillators which are self-instructing, which will keep somebody alive from sudden cardiac death. And there is some treatment if you're in that position. More importantly, perhaps, is to consider prevention. And again, to do that, you have to understand what the underlying issues are, what the, the morphology is, if you like. Manage the underlying cause. Deal with the cardiomyopathy if you can. You've got to avoid those known precipitants, too much coffee, too much alcohol, or too much exercise if you're in that category. And after that, you're down to using drugs, 
devices and ablations, and I'll, I'll talk about those in a minute. So drugs, basically a whole range of things which are used to suppress your likelihood of having one of those abnormal rhythms. Devices, I'll show you in a second, but these are things which give you a shock to reverse an abnormal rhythm. And if you have a focus like that young boy who had one in his right ventricle, then you can uh, get rid of it either in the cath lab or uh, by removing it in surgery. This is an implantable cardiac defibrillator, and uh, the device sits just under the skin on the left side and passes through a wire, passes through into the tip of the right ventricle. And when that machine detects that you have an abnormal rhythm, like on the left at the bottom, um, it will fire a shock to the heart to reboot it and uh, hopefully get it back into a normal rhythm, which is great unless um, you are not in a position where you have one of those rhythms and it goes off um, spontaneously, which some of them do. It's very scary. But the uh, NICE now have um, demonstrated and pooled information which demonstrates a 50% reduction in mortality if you have one of these things, uh, called an ICD, and uh, well worth having if you're vulnerable. Um, they can save lives in other ways, and I'm uh, reminded of um, uh, this wonderful story by Woody Allen, which I hope you'll be able to hear. I'll just turn the volume up a little bit. Years ago, my mother gave me a bullet. Bullet. And I put it in my breast pocket. And two years after that, I was walking down the street when a berserk evangelist heaved a Gideon Bible out a hotel room window. Hitting me in the chest. The Bible would have gone through my heart if it wasn't for the bullet. I'm delighted to say that having an implantable defibrillator in Florida also protects you from a bullet. And this is uh, uh, just in the bottom. You can see where the bullet hit this chap and saved his life. So it's a secondary benefit from an implantable defibrillator. Um, we, uh, again, this is a slide I showed you last time, which is about how in the cath lab you can feed up a catheter, um, which is um, this one here coming into the heart, which is burning an area of the heart which has been identified as a focus for precipitating one of these uh, abnormal rhythms. So you can obliterate it by burning it or freezing it in the heart. And we can do the same thing in surgery if we have to. So the treatment is available if you can identify it. But despite there being some treatments and despite there being some preventive evidence, we're still some way away from knowing enough to be able to uh, identify how to protect these people. And I won't read all this out. You can read for yourself. But the bottom line is that we need to understand much more about the disease and particularly how individual patients will respond to the therapy. And knowing more about the genetics and their relationship to the drugs that they're given should get us some way down that road. But to do that, we need tissue, we need information, we need good genetics, we need good science, and we need good research uh, in specialist centres. So I'm now going to turn for the second half of this talk to sudden death and epilepsy. And I'll I'll, I'll show you why they are related a bit later. 
Sudden death in epilepsy is responsible for at least 600 deaths a year in England and Wales. Its definition has recently been clarified. Again, I won't read it for you. It's self-evident. Epilepsy affects more than 500,000, half a million people in the UK, one in 100. And it's a condition that affects the brain and causes repeated seizures. A seizure is when the brain cells, the neurons, fire off abnormal bursts of electrical impulses which can uh, cause the brain to or the body to act strangely. And that may vary from just an odd feeling to a trance-like state and in the most extreme cases to loss of consciousness and generalised convulsions. They're called generalised tonic-clonic seizures or we used to call them fits or grand mal fits. Um, those grandma fits, those big seizures, meant that for much of the 20th century, epileptics were uh, treated very badly by society. They were considered to be insane in many places and put in asylums in London and the same in Chicago. And you can maybe not read it there, but this is the Ohio Hospital for Epileptics the department for the insane. They were part of um, the Nazi Germany program for euthanasia. And so the hangover, this hangover of almost fear of what epilepsy is, has not gone away. This is Prince John, George V's son, who died 97 years ago today of sudden death in epilepsy, having been locked away in the palace for most of his life. The stigma hasn't gone away. Just look at the wording in the second paragraph here. Epileptic man stabbed his noisy neighbour to death. And it's got nothing to do with his epilepsy. Or a judge uh, using language which associates epilepsy with insanity in 2015... Now, if you are young and have severe epilepsy, there's a 24 to 28-fold increase in mortality risk compared with the general population. There's a background increase in risk from a very low risk to a slightly higher one. But the longer you've had epilepsy and the the younger you were at the time of diagnosis, um, the more risk there is of sudden death in epilepsy. And you're more likely to have it if you have generalised tonic-clonic seizures, those extremely big fits, or an increasing frequency of those fits through time. But in the um, epilepsy death register, which started in 2013, of the 600 patients in it at the moment, 20 people had had no previous seizures. My son Toby would be included in that statistic. 20 out of 600. So you can have this risk without knowing about this risk. So let's look at these risk factors. This comes from the Cochrane, a recent Cochrane review, poor seizure control, resistance to treatment, male sex, onset at the age of less than 16, and having epilepsy for a long time, and high frequency of these generalised tonic-clonic seizures. But there are a few more. 
less strong evidence, but nonetheless important. Nighttime, nocturnal seizures, and during sleep. Prone, in the face-down position, and being diagnosed but on no therapy. So in other words, people who've got epilepsy but are in that vulnerable stage before they've been treated. And when you have rapid changes to your drug regime, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a little while. Now, um, rather like trying to understand what happens when someone from suffering from sudden cardiac death dies on the football field, we need to try and understand what happens to uh, epileptics in the process that leads up to their death. Whether it's a small, tiny fit or the generalised tonic-clonic seizures that I've described, which themselves can lead directly to a cardiac arrhythmia of the type I showed you earlier, or can go through, affected by all of these risk states, the um, how severe the seizures are, whether your anti-epileptic drugs, AEDs, have been adjusted recently, whether you have a long unconscious period after a fit, um, whether your brain changes, and what your basic genetics tell you about your risk. Either way, they produce some physiological changes in your body which have um, potentially fatal consequences. Um, very often when you're in this state, you get pulmonary edema, fluid in the lungs, and that um, fluid in the lungs leads to hypoxia in your blood. The others can cause you to ventilate less effectively, which also produce some hypoxia, and both of those can precipitate a rhythm change, and that in itself can lead to death. So the final common pathway from this is similar to the final common pathway in sudden cardiac death. And understanding that process uh, allows people to try and understand what we can do to preventing happening to the next people. But I think um, Sanjay Sisodaya is someone uh, who works at UCL and um, uh, Great Ormond Street and the National Hospital for Nervous Diseases. And he said this, which I think is really important. It's multifactorial. You, it's really unlikely we're going to find one thing or two things that cause this, a whole bunch of stuff. And maybe trying to fit it all into one single pathway is probably going to be a waste of time. And he's come to that conclusion because... They, um, his group looks extensively at the genetics uh, associated with severe epilepsy and uh, sudden death in epilepsy. And they've, they've shown using a process called exome sequencing that over a thousand genes are involved, uh, likely to be involved in sudden death in epilepsy. There is no single gene. And if, uh, he describes it quite well that the, there are more deleterious genetic variants in people with sudden death and epilepsy than there are in the general population. There's probably a small group of genes which are worth pursuing, and this is in its early stage, uh, but it's an important study which hopefully will get us closer to identifying those people who've got a mutation which allows them to be vulnerable to this. Now, um, I uh, talked about the membrane changes in the heart, how during... Um, the development of the action potential, which is the way that ions uh, like uh, of uh, sodium, calcium, and potassium flow across the cell membrane to generate an action potential. The action potential in the heart is causing contraction. The action potential in the brain is causing the electrical signals to pass along the neurons. 
But this flux of ions across the cell membrane are not dissimilar in both organs. And you have ion channel problems which um, uh, can occur at each of these places where ions move across the cell membrane. And there are common mechanisms in brain cells and heart cells. And the uh, current feeling is that this represents about a 20% overlap in mechanism, as estimated by the people working in the field. And uh, that, to me, is an extremely interesting observation, so that there are mechanistic causes which perhaps bring these two things together. Some are clearly purely neurological, some are clearly purely functional and cardiac, but in the middle is this group where they overlap. That argues, in my view, for much more extensive research collaboration between cardiac and neurological groups, not competition in the classical way between neurologists and cardiologists, neurosurgeons, cardiac surgeons, but detailed, tight research collaboration, which is always difficult to do once the silo has been created uh, by history. It also argues, I would say, that every newly diagnosed epileptic patient or patient with epilepsy should have a full cardiac assessment to make sure that they're not in that 20%. Um, And unfortunately, there's been quite a lot of resistance to this uh, from uh, cardiology services around the country. When you think about it, for pretty good reasons, cardiologists are rather busy people, and there aren't enough echo technicians, there aren't enough ECG technicians anywhere in the country to be able to deliver this. So it's a service problem. But you would want to do this, wouldn't you, to be able to make sure that these people weren't at risk. Let's go back through the list of who's at risk. Those with generalized tonic-clonic seizures with great frequency, those who have a seizure within the last year, those on no drugs, many drugs, or who've had a poor response to drugs, those at night time, who have fits at night, and women of childbearing age. Our women of, of childbearing age are at risk because they have a high motivation to alter their drug therapy because the drugs that are used in epilepsy can be quite toxic to the fetus. And so in order to protect the fetus, people have a, a driver to uh, change their therapy, and they need adjustments to the therapy because of the physiology of pregnancy anyway. It's a very skilled business, changing their drug dosage. Now, I have not got time to talk to you about that in detail, but I don't need to because there is a brilliant program just now on uh, Radio 4, uh, which is available as a podcast to download um, and to listen to probably for another three weeks, I think, on uh, the Radio iPlayer. It's a wonderful program. I can't do it justice telling you about it. But this is a, um, a woman who with severe epilepsy who explaining what it means and how she understands the risk of what is required to manage her life. It's very moving. We have the same problem about whether it's a good idea to know or not know that you are at risk of sudden death in epilepsy if you have severe epilepsy or fall into those risk categories. What can you do about it if you've got it? And unfortunately, many people looking after epilepsy um, are in denial about it or see it as a professional taboo, that they don't want to discuss the risk of death because they think it's going to frighten the horses, if you like. It's not going to be the sort of thing that their patients want to hear. About half of neurologists in a recent review felt that. 
Parents and those who are affected by it feel differently. But it's not uniform. Some people, of course, don't want to know. They don't feel that the treatment is good enough yet to be able to help. But if you're in that high-risk category and you are the sort of person who would benefit from that information, then perhaps you should be told. You should be told. And it would be interesting afterwards to hear from those people who've experienced this what they think. It's a difficult area. But to be most effective, you have to know what you can do if you are aware of being at risk. You have to be able to prevent it. There seems no doubt from the NICE guidelines, from all the evidence in the literature, and from uh, our experience of um, the last few years, that prompt referral to a specialist, an epilepsy specialist, after the first FET, uh, is a good way to get started on the correct treatment because you're at risk until you're on treatment. I would argue from what I've read and the people I've spoken to that neurological and cardiac investigation should be provided to both groups, not separately. You should get as tight control of your epileptic um, management as possible and have a regular review at least once a year. And if you have nocturnal seizures, increased surveillance. Now, there are tricks um, which have been developed to help people. This has come from the West Country, from Cornwall, uh, an app which allows you to um, self-help your um, uh, disease. It's very, been very successful. Uh, it's um, EPSMOM, um, and I think there's some literature about it outside. Other, other things are being tried, and new technology actually is beginning to offer some increased hope, although, to be fair, there isn't that much evidence, comparative or quality evidence, about how effective it is. New technology and little evidence. You could stick a device under the mattress which tells you when someone's having a fit, so that you, if you're available to help them, you can. Um, here's another one of a similar device. There are cameras that you can fit into the bedroom so that when they, if they're susceptible to nocturnal seizures... Uh, they can also alarm people who can come and help. There are sp- special pillows that are supposed to stop you suffocating if you're lying prone. And now, with the development of um, uh, wearables like Fitbits and Apple Watches, sp- one specifically designed to identify a, f- a seizure. And the sensors are becoming more sophisticated. There's a whole variety of them available. And the research laboratories are producing stickers which will broadcast via Bluetooth for quite a long time and which you can put all sorts of different sensors into which will, I think, offer much greater opportunities for uh, research in the next few years. But sometimes the old technology is better, certainly more attractive. Um, Dogs um, have a very keen sense of smell and uh, various uh, dogs, like these support dogs, uh, can be used if you're lucky enough to have one to identify a seizure before it happens, sometimes 10 or 40 minutes before the seizure, they can turn the person into a safe position, call for help, bring a mobile phone, ring a bell, open a door. And unfortunately, there aren't enough of them around, and that means you can't do the research to know whether they work or not. But those people have got them, swear by them. Now, I want to finish this lecture by talking about some of the system problems which affect families and consider how the system gets in the way of good research and support for the families. 
our, in many ways, our system, as the Americans would say, sucks. Part of it is because of the timing of, of, of death, in sudden death in epilepsy. As you remember, it happens in the shadows and often at night. Um, sudden cardiac death, like or near death, has happened to Fabrice Moamba in 2012 when he was playing uh, for Bolton, I think against Spurs, actually. He was successfully resuscitated and campaigns hard for um, more money to go into sudden death and cardiac disease. Patrick Ikang was not so lucky, along with six other professional footballers in Europe in 2016, died on the field. For Sudep, the victims are often young and maybe living alone. It might take, it might take days to discover the body. It also happens at night. And because of the most common cause of death in this age group, if you remember, is suicide, drugs, and also trauma and homicide, it's not surprising that very often the site of death becomes a crime scene. Police tape appears, and you may not be able to get back into the house or into the room. Separated, You're separated from the person who died. In America, there have even been full-blown murder investigations affecting the families of people involved um, who've died of sudden death in epilepsy. I showed you this diagram before about how you get to the coroner and how you get a post-mortem and how there can be an inquest. I want to briefly mention the doctor and the police who come to help at these occasions. These are secondary victims. It is spectacularly stressful. If you've looked after a patient for a very long time, you know the family well, and then you have to come to the house when somebody dies suddenly at night. And the police, young, often, inexperienced, often, have to see the most terrible things and see terrible grief. And they can be affected and get post-traumatic stress disorder. We must never forget them. The real problem with this system is that it goes on and on and on and on and on. The delays and stress associated with this process, particularly if an inquest involved, are extremely wearing for the family. And I want again to consider the problems with a post-mortem. If we're going to do post-mortems at all to find out the cause, then we need to do them well. That means that we need to gather information in, into a written record um, of the type that I've listed here. The post-mortem should be done to standardise protocols. They exist. Royal College of Pathology published them and pay particular attention to the at-risk organs. In my view, the tissue samples must go to experts and there should be appropriate imaging. Now, if there's any uncertainty at the post-mortem, then it goes to a coroner and the coroner's job is to put the death into these categories, um, only one of which is natural causes. And the problem with this system is that um, the coroner is interested in ruling out murder or suicide, and when it's, when it's satisfied that it's natural causes, not all of them want to pursue that into detail. and They place it away into a box. Some do. The importance of science in this context is highly variable and varies from coroner to coroner. But for me, if we want to prevent this in the future, this is the place, the post-mortem and the coroner's court, coroner's staff, where we can gather the tissue and the expertise and the knowledge to be able to influence the future for people with this condition. 
Tissue and images are currently rarely shared with experts. The 96 coroners in this country are independent. Uh, they vary in how they interpret the role, and it's been described more than one occasion over the last decade as being a postcode lottery. Um, affected families have experienced refusal to refer them to, for support from the coroner's offices and coroner's court and a reluctance to communicate. Some coroners haven't informed the people who've been looking after the patient for a very long time, and the first thing the family hear about is an invitation to come for a follow-up appointment, which is extremely distressing. Um, the coroners have, on a number of occasions, refused to share tissue with the experts, even though the family have asked for it and given consent. They don't see their role as having anything to do with feeding the science. As one leading researcher in this field told me just recently, he found it very depressing, and the family found it depressing, that they were unable to have transferred to them brain tissue from the victim for research, and the only barrier was the attitude of the coroner. He said, this simply can't be right. And I, I agree with him. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for the coroners. They work their butts off. They have a very, very busy life. In 2014, the waiting list was up to seven years to get an inquest. Things have got better. And the latest report from the coroners, um, let's look at the volumes. Almost a quarter of a million deaths were reported. It's nearly half the deaths in the country. They did 32,000, 33,000 inquests, and that's gone up by a quarter in a year because of deaths in custody having to be, have an inquest now. They did, ordered 89,000 post-mortems, 38% of their referrals, and it takes at least 20 weeks, so an average of 20 weeks to process inquests, which has improved since 2014. 31% of their inquests ended with natural causes being the cause. Now, the postcode lottery extends to the number of cases reported to the coroner and the number of postmortems held. So this is the deaths reported to the coroner. Colours, the darker the colour, uh, the more people are reported. And it ranges uh, from 25% um, in Rutland, which is somewhere here, I think, for those people who know about Rutland, and 92% um, uh, to Stoke-on-Trent. It's really variable. Why should it be so variable? And if you um, look at the number of post-mortems held as a, a post-mortems ordered, um, you're much more likely to get a post-mortem ordered if you live in the Isle of Wight than, than anywhere else, and least likely in the City of London. Why? The time taken to process an inquest is also highly variable. Shortest in Hartlepool and longest 61 weeks in West London. And this is a huge improvement since 2014. But that postcode lottery, unfortunately, doesn't just extend to events after death. It also extends to how your epilepsy is managed anyway. Attitudes, awareness, coordination, quality of communication, access to specialists and effectiveness also vary from postcode to postcode. And there are similar but slightly less marked variations in quality of services for inherited heart and heart rhythm disorders, where access to specialty services is also very patchy. Epilepsy Action did a survey in 2013 uh, looking at service planning for people with epilepsy. Only a third of CCGs, their clinical commissioning groups, they're the ones who buy care from hospitals, have 
needs assessments for their patient. Only a quarter of local authorities have done needs assessment, and only um, a fifth of CCGs have anybody who's any overall responsibility for sorting out epilepsy in their community. It takes more than two weeks to be seen by an epilepsy specialist if you're lucky to see one. Half of patients never see an epilepsy nurse. 90% almost had no written care plan. And 30% hadn't been reviewed for more than 12 months, even though the guidelines, NICE guidelines, say that they should be, despite 70% of those having seizures. And three-quarters of patients have never, ever been repeated, referred to a specialist centre despite what we know about the quality of control that can come from such referrals. The service is far from perfect, and much more needs to be done. The change that has happened in the service has only come about because of the drive, commitment, and pressure exerted by those bereaved family members who've had the energy to form charities and uh, push the system. Many of them are in this hall tonight, and I just express my public admiration for all they've done. I haven't had the energy to do anything for seven years, and I think they're amazing. But these are some of the quotes that people in those charities have said to me about their interactions with the health system. It's like banging your head against a wall. It's hard enough to see them, harder to make them listen, and astonishing if they get around to doing anything. They promise, but they don't deliver and they, the people change so often that you have to start all over again the next year. They finding it struggle to have a dialogue with our health service that we, me and others like me, are responsible for. This can't be right. So I want to finish by saying what I think we can do, what is needed. I think we should first of all standardise a protocol for all sudden deaths in the young, irrespective of whether they're cardiac or, or anything, really. It's about data collection, sample acquisition, good imaging, putting all the data into appropriate registries, collaboration between the key research teams, supporting the families, and having a national, including the law, commitment to the importance of research. We need to work with biobanks, um, and there are biobanks. The Epilepsy Society have one at Queen Square, but that's neurological-based. I'm talking about tissue from all specialties being merged into one uh, bioresource where the genetic material can also be held. And specialist services need to be concentrated where people who know this stuff work closely together, epilepsy and cardiac. And finally, you've got to ask this question, which has come up on every talk I've given here. Is the NHS capable of spreading good practice from one place to another? My firm belief is that it's, with its current governance structure, it is borderline impossible. We have to reinvent the wheel from area to area, hospital to hospital, doctor to doctor, and that cannot be a good state of affairs. The hangover for how people feel about epilepsy in society is evident from how we fund research. Uh, a quick uh, review from the Charity Commission of how much money goes into cardiac research, which is on the left, 300 million a year, versus the 30 million or so into epilepsy research, 
demonstrates that very clearly. And if you just look at those charities, the distribution of money which is so-called allocated to sudden death type research, it's still twice as much in the heart than in epilepsy, although the same number of people are affected. It's an interesting paradox that something is sexier than something else when it comes to how we fund research, when the impact is the same. It argues again for collaboration between these silos in medicine and for us to use opportunities like this to influence the way you, the public, think. Epilepsy is not insanity. You don't need to be in an asylum. A death in epilepsy is the same as a sudden cardiac death for everyone involved. Um, Thomas Gresham set up these lectures in theory to educate in 1597. Two workers in the field of epilepsy, Elizabeth Donner in Canada and Lena Nasheff from King's College Hospital in London, said that we need to educate to protect if we want to reduce sudden death in the population. And I hope I've helped that process a little tonight. Um, we all miss Toby every day. All the things you wish you could or should have said stay with you always. But it's the lost opportunities for him that really hurt. Toby loved American politics and hated injustice and unfairness and war. And it seems unbelievable to me that he's not been able to experience 2016, Brexit, Trump, and hasn't been there to shout at Trump on television. We miss his infectious laugh, um, and he'd have adored the satire and the Steve Bell cartoons that have come along this year. Um, thank you to everybody who's made this talk possible. And I would like you all, please, to remember those people who died young from whatever the cause. And uh, thank you once again for your attention this evening. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.